that's what I do. You are super sweet. I listen to my wife. <laughs> and I get her things when she needs them. Thank you. You are welcome. I love you. I'm talking to my little elfish voice. <laughs> I you love you more. <laughs> you probably don't need any of that until we get to the section where the characters are. So you could probably skip all of those first pages. <laughs> they just gave it to you. Which pages should I go to? Um, Let's see. Maybe page four. Let's see. Page four is where the cast starts. Page four of 36. Uh, I only gave you like seven pages though. Six pages. I have like 36. All right. Page four stuck. I masturbated on my show notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were really quick about it because it happened since I got home. It, that don't last long. <laughs> Ugh. Oh boy. You ready? I don't know. I don't even we'll know. See. This is going to be an interesting one. Mm-hmm. All right. We're either going to sound real, real dumb or it's going to go real, real well. I mean, it might be both. It might, we might sound so dumb that it goes well. This might be the room <laughs> of podcasting. Welcome to the Nightmare Box, presenting Mistakes Were Made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, the badass bitch. Week 10? Yeah. Back in the gym, week 10. Kristen Bloom. And we're here to bring you, I've got some ideas for what we can call this. Oh, hit me with them because I haven't even thought about it. T-t-t-textbook Tuesday. Okay. Tremendous Tuesday. <laughs> Terrific Tuesday. And my personal favorite, Tectonic Tuesday. Because <laughs> it's earth shaking. <laughs> I do kind of like that. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. I haven't uh, honestly given it any thought. But this is not Two Star Tuesday. This is not Two Star Tuesday. This is Kristen's new idea um, for how we can move forward because I eventually want to do Patreon episodes that are like three, five part deep dives into classic films. And Personally, we're both sick of the two stars uh, for the time Very being. Much. So we thought we'd break them up, you know, week by week basis and do um, like we're a classic film or a really good film and then do our dog shit movies that we typically do so that we can learn things from the classics instead of just rehashing that we hate that um, paranormal films are always bastardizations <laughs> of mental illness. Yeah. And my hope is this will feel a bit more like a study like Brett and I both whenever we were in college, I'm sure had to like um analyze films or analyze movies or whatever where mm-hmm. you sit and discuss them in a room full of people and um some people are pretentious some people just don't get it at yeah. all but at least there's some information in there mm-hmm. usually that kind of sort of you're like oh i never thought about it that way so i'm here um, on the pretentious and not going to give you a lot of information side and i'm on the i didn't get it at all side um <laughs> but now the idea is i guess with the two stars or my hope anyway is with the two stars brett and i kind of just analyze they may be more professional films than necessarily where Brett and I are at our, in our careers, mm-hmm. but they are still kind of amateur films yeah. on a scale of A-list films, for yeah. sure. Um, so they're kind of Brett and I analyzing amateur films from a more amateur perspective mm-hmm. and trying to see what we can gain from them. Um, with this kind of added-on series, I'm hoping to actually like really studiously analyze films that are works of art yeah. and culture but we picked a huge one for our first attempt yeah, we might have been idea. off too much than we can chew but it's called mistakes were made not i got it right the first time so bear with us we're still learning this new format this is our first run on it and we are here to talk about one of the greatest movies that has ever been made 1994's pulp fiction i didn't need title reminder i was showing you the year just in case you weren't oh sure no the year. i got it <laughs> <laughs> because i was I just realized i've got a whole list 
1994's Pulp Fiction, starring John Travolta, starring Samuel L. Jackson, starring Uma Thurman, starring Bruce Willis, fucking knocked it out of the goddamn park. I believe Tarantino's second film, third one that he wrote. Is that correct? So I believe um, Reservoir Dogs and True Romance came the two years before Pulp Fiction, and he didn't direct True Romance. I know I'm it was definitely correctly. early in his career, but I'm not sure if it was the third or not. So, mm-hmm. Sure, we'll go with that. Um, it's kind of silly to even give you these scores. Obviously, they're high. It's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Um, Rotten Tomatoes critics gave it a 92%. Mm-hmm. The audience gave it a 96%. So, I'm, I'm up there with it. Uh, IMDb gave it an 8.9. Um, I probably rounded out a good solid 8.5 at the lowest. I might go mm. a little bit higher, but I think 8.5 would be definitely like the lowest I would go. I'm still up in the high 90s. I, <laughs> I loved this movie when I first saw it. I loved it the other three times that I saw it, and I was so excited. I got the humor this time around that I don't think I got when I was younger. I was going to say that, too. Like I feel like um, I did some research on it, and Brett's done some research on it, too. And like I feel like that's one of the things they talk about is like how... Uh, cleverly mm-hmm. non-pretentious this movie is like it's um, got kind of witty moments but it's also not trying to aggrandize itself yeah. and um, yeah I don't think I, I didn't even remember a lot of the conversations that <laughs> happened in the movie at all I was like oh I totally forgot like this yeah. entire scene and I was just driving you nuts because I kept going it's this scene because <laughs> every scene's a fucking classic yeah and um, yeah I, I don't think I ever really appreciated the nuances of the scenes mm-hmm. before this viewing because it's been a few years since I've watched it and I own it i probably haven't watched it since i was in my early 20s to be honest um so yeah i I think it's definitely a movie you kind of have to revisit a few times Mm -hmm. to kind of catch stuff yeah and what blew me away the most and i wish i would have written down everybody who won that year but at the oscars it was put up for seven different things and it won one and i I can't remember what it was Tarantino got best screenplay i think original screenplay that might be it um here's 10 other films randomly chosen from the year 1994 it opened on the same day as the shawshank redemption what (laughs) It came out in the same year as The Usual Suspects, Leon the Professional, The Natural Born Killers, Forrest Gump, which took all the awards that year, Interview with the Vampire, The Little Rascals, Miracle on 34th Street, Clear and Present Danger, and Speed, featuring Keanu Reeves. That's a pretty impressive list, (laughs) actually. (laughs) It was just 10 I picked at random going, I love that film, (laughs) but there's so many more across the different genres. (laughs) Um, another fun fact for you, this is the first film that Miramax fully financed. Yeah. So um, this film kind of put Miramax on the Mac on the Mac mm-hmm. on the map as a mm-hmm. uh, indie film company and of course they eventually blew up to be a very large film yeah. company. And then one of them went to jail for <laughs> rape. I know um, it was made for eight million, right? And five million went to paying the salaries of the actors. The most I've done a lot of research. I'm not even looking at notes right now. This is all on top of the dome. The most expensive scene in the entire film was the restaurant scene, where they you know they go to that old school futuristic at the same time esque restaurant and the dance happens. Oh, that no. was a hundred and twenty thousand dollars of the remaining three million dollar budget, and hmm. he killed it because they made like two hundred and nineteen million at the end of this. Yeah, the box office was two hundred and thirteen point mm-hmm. uh, nine million. Yeah, and the uh, budget was eight to eight point five million. Um, and I saw it too because I guess uh, 
uh, Jackson, Uma, and um, Travolta were all kind of... I mean, Travolta had done... um, This was like one of his comeback films. Yeah, Yeah. Travolta had done some stuff, but yeah, his career had kind of started to fizzle out, and this was a comeback movie for him, but the uh, other two kind of weren't exceptionally well-known, and it Mm -hmm. kind of boosted their careers, but uh, Bruce Willis had already done a lot of stuff and was considered an A-list celebrity and took a pay cut so that he could do the film, and it apparently kind of reinvented his career a bit, too. Yeah, because he would have done Die Hard, definitely one, maybe two by this time, because I know that he didn't do the one that he did with Samuel L. Jackson until after this was made. Yeah, he took a pay cut to be in this movie. Yeah. Um... Shockingly, uh, one of the only films we've ever done that was both written and directed by the same person that has just <laughs> crushed it. Uh, Tarantino wrote it and directed it. Yeah, he wrote it. I, another weird trivia fact. I'm probably going to hit you with about a thousand of these because this is all I've been reading about for two days. Um, he wrote it with another guy. And then in order to get the same billing he got for Reservoir Dogs written and directed by, he gave the guy the story by credit so that he could have the written by credit. So that a little bit like an Amos or something like that. Roger Avery? Yeah. So that uh, guy helped him write the screenplay. He, he started writing this in his early 20s. And he put it off for years. I've, there's so much information. I'm not going to yeah. rehash all of it. <laughs> they were saying he had pulled like inspiration from like a lot of other like movies and works mm-hmm. and stuff too. Um and there was like a thing that I read where they were calling Tarantino a film kleptomaniac. Like he couldn't help himself. He has to reference other people's shit in his films. In everything. <laughs> um, I am not going to tell you what these people are in, but I guess we can do a breakdown of the cast. Pretty much all of these people are famous. <laughs> yeah, should we just hit the mains here? So we got Trent... <laughs> John Travolta plays Vincent Vega, the hitman who... Works alongside Samuel Jackson, who plays Jules Winfield, other hitman. Uma Thurman plays Marcellus Wallace's uh, wife. I don't know why Marcellus Wallace is not the next one on my list. Yeah, no, they list yeah. uh, Butch way further down, too. Ving Rames plays Marcellus Wallace. Harvey Keitel, the legend, plays Winston Wolfe. Um, Tim Roth plays Ringo or Pumpkin. Amanda Plummer plays Yolanda or Honey Bunny. Um, the cab driver, Fabian, we don't really need her. Da, da, da. No, that's the girlfriend. That's Butch's girlfriend. Fib- oh, she's not the cab driver. Yeah. So Maria de Medeiros uh, plays Butch's Fabine, girlfriend. Fabine. Yeah. <laughs> um, Eric Stoltz plays the drug dealer, Lance. Roseanne Arquette, who we saw in Bride of Chucky. Um, she was the one we had the weird transgender conversation about in the Bride of Chucky episode because her name wasn't Amanda, or I mean, wasn't Rosanna back then. Plays uh, Lance's, no, I've got, I don't, Lance's it's wife. all gone. Lance's <laughs> wife. Of course, Christopher Co- Christopher Cockins. Christopher Walken <laughs> as Captain Coons. It's all falling apart. Bruce Willis as Butch Coolidge. That's it. And that's that. Um, yeah, so super star-studded cast. Um, yeah, yeah, there's no point. I'm, I'm good on that one, though? Yeah, all right, cool. no point even telling you what these people have been and if you've not heard of them that's just yeah. sad um do we want to do a synopsis or do we want to attempt a synopsis i think the film's pretty widely known you <laughs> know i think <laughs> we can afford the synopsis shit yeah it goes it, down you got uh three or four depending on how you look at it different story arcs that happen in this film you've got the redemption story of jules you've got the downfall of vega 
You've got Butch trying to get away from Marcellus Wallace. And if you want to look at it, you can look at it as the fourth man's arc, which ends very quickly. Who's the fourth man? The guy who rushes out of the bathroom and gets oh. <laughs> all fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that one's too far in the weeds to get into. Uh, yeah, so where do we want to start? I don't know. I My favorite thing about this film from a writing perspective, and again, we're not going to introduce anything new to the fold here. Uh, we just want to hear your thoughts on it, is the nonlinear storytelling. Because in my earlier watchings of this film, I probably haven't seen this since I was like 21 or 22, as you were saying. And I watched it because it was a classic, and I got that it happened out of order. Mm -hmm. But in my head, I I remembered it as they could go in any order. And now that I've rewatched it, having gone through all the writing that I've gone through since then, I see that it couldn't have been told in any order. It has an order, but if it's told in the actual sequential order that it was, then the overall arc goes you would have a shitty third act. So the way it's laid out is so beautiful because it crosses all the characters meet each other on their other arcs and it has an overall... It reminded me of that exercise uh, that you and I did for Arroyo's class where we had the jigsaw in the window Mm -hmm. thing where we had to take all these clips from different books and put them together to write a poem. And (laughs) it was like they're all elements that kind of cross over each other. Yeah, that are supposed to flow into Mm -hmm. one piece. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I ever really consciously tried to piece it back together. Yeah. I don't think I, I mean, it's obvious it's not in mm-hmm. order, but I don't think I ever really like consciously acknowledged like, oh, this movie's out of order. And why does that matter? Um, on any level? Cause it, there's a lot of other shit going on in this movie yeah. that, uh, I don't think that's going to be the first thing you're going to think about when you're watching this movie. I, I think Especially if you're a younger person, Jackson's uh, verse that he recites when mm-hmm. he's like shooting people or the, the whole Ezekiel line that Tarantino yeah. made up. Yeah, or the whole <laughs> incident where they shoot the kid in the face or like any of that stuff is Marvin in the face. <laughs> gonna grab your attention way more than the fact that this movie's out of order. You forgot about Marvin. Because when the gun went off, you were yeah. like, Oh shit. Yeah, no, I completely <laughs> forgot about that. I and I You're can't. like, where are they going with this black kid? I don't remember a scene with him later. And no. I was like, hold on. No, I remember <laughs> thinking as he was like turning around and holding the gun, like he probably really should have pointed the gun at that kid. And then it went off and I was like, oh my God, I forgot that was in yeah. this movie. And for the next like 10 minutes, I was sitting there going, do you see a sign in my yard? Because I knew that was coming. I, I completely I, forgot I about it. I love this fucking film. <laughs> but yeah, I do think it's interesting, like having watched it now after it's been a while and having watched it now for the first time after having mm-hmm. gone to school and like trying to make a bit more of a conscious effort to analyze movies, like why this stuff matters. Because, um, yeah, I was reading an article earlier where they were talking about how the uh, intermingling of the sections of the story um, kind of helped make it more of a fluid story. Like, you can actually block this off into a chronological Mm -hmm. story, but what happens in that instance is your characters start falling off as the movie goes on. You lose Samuel L. Jackson like like 15 minutes into the film. Yeah, and He goes, drops off the briefcase, and then he's not going to be in the movie again. Yeah, and he's... It would open with Christopher Walken's speech about a gold watch and the ass. (laughs) Uh, I think that actually comes in the second act, but yeah. It would be right up front. Because it happened in the 70s, if you put it all in chronological order. You see the 
briefcase stuff before Butch does the fight because he meets them while he's talking to Marsalis yeah. first. So, um, like, it comes a little bit later into the movie, but it's not no, towards the, the end. No, the Christopher Walken speech yeah, from like, when he was a kid. Yeah, like, I, I have yeah. a, a breakdown of it. And, yeah, they, like, if it's quote-unquote in chronological order, you get the shit with uh, the briefcase first, and mm-hmm. then we get the diner hold up because at this point Vincent still has to be alive. Yeah. And then, um, like, we go into, like, Butch's story after all that. Because um, mm-hmm. he... But like, it would, yeah. Immediately, third scene, we're doing the deal with Marcellus. We would lose Samuel Jackson yeah, for so, the rest of the film. Yeah, so Samuel's uh, character would drop off. And then uh, Vincent gets killed by Butch. So the first two characters that you've invested in completely mm-hmm. drop off. And then you're stuck with Butch. And then... Um, and his redemption arc with Marcellus. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, like, it ultimately just kind of ends with Butch driving off into the sunset because mm-hmm. that's technically the last thing that happens. And it's not, like, a very satisfying ending because it's the least impressive yeah. story arc. So Who's Zed? Zed's dead, <laughs> baby. And then they would just... Yeah. <laughs> so, it, like, it feels a bit more like little mini episodes you're watching within a movie if you don't, mm-hmm. like, piece them the way that they're pieced. And, um, like, the way that it is... You know, it feels more like you're invested in each individual story. And even with the robbers, that was something I was reading earlier. Um, You know, going into that final scene Mm -hmm. with the people robbing the diner because you've seen um, the rest of the movie and like the way they were dressed. And you kind of vaguely know the order of the movie. You know that um, Travolta and Jackson are both going to live to see the end of the, the diner, end of the diner scene so in your mind you're kind of consciously mm-hmm. rooting for these robbers like oh are you gonna fuck this up are you gonna <laughs> die today like what's gonna happen because they're not gonna die interesting note from a writer's angle <clears throat> that i learned today that i've never caught before um honey bunny's line changes so yeah. in the beginning she's like i'll shoot all you motherfuckers something 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 and like motherfuckers isn't the end of the sentence because it's coming from the perspective of uh honey bunny and pumpkin but at the end of the film, the line she screams when she pulls her gun out ends in the word motherfuckers. And now it's from the perspective of the guy who said motherfucker the entire movie. So you're getting her line from Samuel L. Jackson's perspective on the other side of the restaurant, which Tarantino has had to defend to critics. He goes, that's not a flub. I did that because we've changed perspective. And I wanted to show, you know, like he's not paying attention to their conversation. He just hears something get screamed. He hears a different thing than what she actually screamed, which is meta as fuck as far as a writing standpoint that's interesting um but yeah Yeah, so she goes i'll I'll motherfucking execute every last one of you and then he hears i'll execute all of you motherfuckers that's interesting Mm -hmm. um apparently which i didn't notice that either apparently his speech that he gives throughout the movie changes to like depending on the situation his speech gets edited a little bit whenever um he's doing the verse that he does um but yeah, what I was saying a second ago, so like basically you end up in the diner like kind of rooting for these two characters that have just been like side characters yeah. that are establishing the setup um, because you know the other two characters aren't <laughs> going to die. Yeah, you know Samuel's going to fuck somebody up, or at least that's what you think initially. Yeah, um, versus, you know, if you had seen the whole movie chronologically, basically what happens is... Um, you see the gangsters, like one of them dies and one of them mm-hmm. kind of sort of redeems himself. And then Butch, the boxer who screws over his, you know, corrupt boss, drug lord dude, basically just kind of comes out of it unscathed while 
Jules, who's kind of the mm-hmm. godlike figure in this movie, like his wisdom that he tries to give Vincent just gets ignored. So it's kind of just like, a, oh, if you do bad things, bad things happen. Yeah. And, then and then he the gives one... a badass speech in a diner and then yeah. walks off. And it's like, what, what <laughs> the fuck did that even mean? Yeah, so it's not quite as impactful as if you kind of get inter- like mingled with all of these characters' stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good move. You know, in retrospect, as you said, watching it for the first time as a filmmaker and me watching it for the first time as like, you know, read, read like a writer. This is kind of what I was trying to do here. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really happy about with this movie is he respects his audience. Like as much as Tarantino's known for the, you know, at some point I'm going to do something fucking ridiculous. This film feels like. I can tell it out of order. You're going to feel what I'm trying to say to you, and you're going to have to put it back in and torture yourself for another two and a half hours because you know there's something there. Yeah. Like, he's not over-explaining it. So every time you watch it, you get something new. Oh, now I understand the chronology. I understand that Marcellus was probably there to help kill Butch at Butch's house, but he ran off for coffee and donuts, and that's how he gets ass-raped, and that's what figures out Bruce Willis's art. I forgot that scene, too. <laughs> Man, I forgot so much. I totally forgot about that whole section. Bring out the gimp. <laughs> <laughs> you kept saying the gimp, and I was like, I don't know what the gimp is. Yeah, it's because Mark, the guy who ran the pawn shop, if you want to go back first time caller, uh, that episode is when Mark passed away. But I, I bought him a poster. Me and Josh bought him a poster for the wall. It said Zed's Pawn Shop. And it's <laughs> because he loved Pulp Fiction. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It said guns, gimps, and something else. <laughs> oh, my God. Um... I guess final takeaway for doing it out of order, though. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, what you were talking about, like um, Tarantino kind of pulling out things you don't expect mid-movie, uh, the the quote-unquote Marvin incident or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> uh, Jules and Vincent are the two characters all the weird shit mm-hmm. happens to, and then basically it's just uh, Butch on the run after that. And yeah. you know, the Gimp scene is pretty crazy. But um, I think Bruce Willis sums it up really well with the line to his girlfriend at the end. He goes, ever since I left you this morning, it's been the weirdest goddamn day of my <laughs> fucking life. <laughs> right. Um, but like all the like really aggressive, violent shit basically happens with the two thug characters. Mm-hmm. And um, like if they did it chronologically, they drop off and then you you don't get anything really major outside of the uh, molestation scene. Like, that was I think... a rape. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think Marvin's death, like, placed where it's at is, like, impactful because you don't expect it. And mm-hmm. it's like, all this other weird shit's been going down, and then you get this kind of like, oh, bang, oops, my bad. You didn't mean to, you know? Versus if it had all been chronologically. You hit a like... bump. I ain't hit no motherfucking bump. <laughs> If it happened chronologically, that would be the last, like, really major death we would see, mm-hmm. um, besides Vincent's death, which, for being a major character, his death didn't feel that shocking it to me. It was very anticlimactic. Yeah, it was just like, oh, he's dead. All right, let's yeah, go. It was more or less, who's in the bathroom right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, did, I did forgot that he died, too. I didn't expect that. I do think that's interesting mm-hmm. to kill off a character that we spent so much time with, and also an interesting choice to do it out of order, so... We're ending the movie with that character mm-hmm. still there knowing he's going to die later. So yeah. it's like, ooh, when you walk out of this diner, your day is not going to go well. 
full circle. I saw a breakdown where it broke it down between a Monday and a Thursday. And that's how they explained chronologically kind of like this all takes place over the course of four days mm. and you can break it down in that way. So Samuel Jackson doesn't go to the hit to kill Butch. And because Samuel Jackson's not there, he gets taken out in the bathroom. He's quit at that point. Yeah, he's walked off because he gave his briefcase to, in one of the greatest scenes in the movie, which is the offer that Marcellus gives Butch. That would have been the last time you see Jules. Yeah, because at that point he's quit his job. Um, And yeah, that was one of the things I was reading earlier, that that's kind of... um, the most brilliant thing about the way Tarantino did this movie is you start the movie um, with them going to retrieve the briefcase and Jules is giving this really violent speech as he guns a man down. And yeah. he is still this character who's mm-hmm. like, I will exact my wrath on you. And then by the end of the movie, because it's out of order, we ultimately make the decision where he has had this redemption mm-hmm. arc to walk away from violence. So instead of being this film about like, oh, if you're a gangster and you do bad shit, bad yeah. shit happens to you. Like it's a movie about changing and growth mm-hmm. and walking away from violence. So it's it's an interesting choice to put that at the end, even though we know that's not where the movie ends. Because we kind of feel too like, oh, like Mm -hmm. we've made a choice and we've made a change and we're leaving this behind. And I think that's what's most interesting to me as far as the the Bible verse is concerned is it points that out to the audience. It might be the one time when Tarantino in the film is like, okay, well, if you didn't catch it, let me explain it to you because he does the whole speech very quietly, very calmly. And then he says, that used to just be some cold motherfucking shit I used to say. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like now it has a like an old man criminal to the young man criminal. Like, listen to what I'm telling you right now. You're going down the wrong path. I want to be the shepherd of men. And I like, too, that he acknowledges he's like, I'd like to think that I'm the shepherd. But he was like, I mm-hmm. am the wrath and I'm trying to be the shepherd. Yeah. Like, I like that. That's too. That's a tingly line. <laughs> I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a really pretty line because, yeah, I mean, there is this acknowledgement of that we're all um, kind of flawed and mm-hmm. you have to work to be bigger than you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well done chronologically. I'm, fucking, I'm excited. I'm sorry if I'm cutting you off. I no, love this movie and I'm, I'm, I'm very this excited is... about this new prospect where we get to watch a really good film good at movies. least once every other week. This is a test run, so the format's going to be a little more sloppy. We'll get it yeah. figured out as we go, though. What do you got next? Because I've only got one more like big note, but I've got like five sub notes mm. to that big note. I have um, a really big topic I maybe kind of want to close on, depending on what okay. your other topic is. So um, for now, I'm going to go to the fact that this is technically a quote-unquote indie film. Um, Miramax was a new up-and-coming company at the time that this movie was made, and it was the first movie they fully financed. Harvey Weinstein Um, was alone with his weird dick. Just uh, (laughs) yelling at it in the night going, you are just weird and I don't have the money. (laughs) And $8 million is a lot of money, but it is not a lot of money when you're working with already established actors. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in this movie that costs money. Um, You know, I think even with just the, uh, the dolls, we 
dropped a couple hundred if I'm I think it was like 250 or something yeah like and it was you know all of 15 yeah. and we minutes. didn't have to pay for the set we didn't pay any didn't of pay the, the actors, actors. Oh, just... we, we bought food for them but yeah. yeah it was all of 15 minutes uh, most of everything that we used in that movie was free it was um, just like specific props and stuff that we needed that costed us money so the idea that something like that would cost a couple hundred um, when none of the crew, none of the cast, nobody else is getting paid, like kind of yeah. puts in perspective that $8 million can bleed out real quick when you have a bigger production yeah. with people that are actually expecting to get paid. Unless you've got the brain of Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think it's something, and I, I forgot a lot of that too, I think it's something worth noting that for this being kind of a smaller budget film, um, they make the shit that happens believable while tricking you into thinking you saw it when you didn't really see it. Mm-hmm. Um, That's one of my notes as well. <laughs> you want to go ahead? I was I was gonna say I think to me honestly the most impressive because we tried to do it ourselves whenever we were shooting Ziggy is the tricking you into thinking you've watched these people take these drugs. Like mm-hmm. pretty much every time someone snorts something, all you see is uh, them like leaning down and then their own head or their own hands or something kind of block it and you see them snort. Yeah. We don't show the powder like going you up. You don't see or... it like you do in Scarface where he like dumps his head in the pile. <laughs> yeah, and you and you don't even see like the plate with the powder being sucked up into a mm-hmm. straw or anything like that. They don't show in any way like them actually snorting anything. I think there is a injection scene where you see a needle going into yep. skin. That's but... when he's with uh, Lance. Yeah. But you don't show um, the medicine being plunged out mm-hmm. while seeing the needle in the skin. So, like, there's a technique there to shooting, which I'm assuming yeah. it was a retractable needle. Um, there's, Or maybe they actually stuck them with a needle that just had saline in it. But there's a technique there to, like, kind of choosing mm-hmm. your framing. Because they cut to the vial so you can see the quote-unquote blood come back up and then push back out yeah. and come back in but and push f- back out, but it's not in the arm. Yeah, for all you know, that needle's in a bottle. Like, you mm-hmm. don't see where the needle's at in that shot. And, like, there is, like, a very meticulous, like, thought process that has to go behind that. Like, we're going to shoot this angle this way and, like, edit it this way so that... Mm-hmm. In your mind, you're seeing these sequence of events, but we never showed them together. Yeah, the big one being when uh, Travolta sticks Thurman with the needle uh, you know, to bring her out of the OD, hits her with a shot of adrenaline. That, uh, it's a retractable needle backwards shot, so he shot the thing backwards and then sped forward, so you think you hear the... And it's like, dude thumps his finger on a pumpkin, hmm. and now you've got this whole sequence. I but, didn't know he shot it yeah, cause in he, reverse. He shot it in reverse, and if you pay attention, you'll see that the red dot on her chest isn't there when she gets back up. Huh. That's so, hilarious. <laughs> he just he put his hands on her chest and then like reached back really fast and like threw his head forward, <laughs> so that when you play it forward, it looks like the most violent stabbing motion of all we time. We didn't... Um, we didn't end up using the shot, but we actually did that ourselves in the dolls. Um, I don't know if you were in the room when we did it or not, but there's a uh, spoiler alert, I guess, if you <laughs> haven't seen our short film. Um, there's a scene where uh, one of the girls gets murdered and um, like uh, the chainsaw that we used whenever we were filming with our actors didn't have a blade on it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was super safe. And like I had... Um, 
film some stuff where you could actually see the little girl and like he would kind of lower the chainsaw down and like I made sure like the whole time we were filming that stuff she was super comfortable yeah. with it and I was like if you're those were the coolest yeah. kids of all time I was like if you're <laughs> feeling not safe or you're feeling a little stressed out let me know I was like we'll cut you know I was like it's it's not even gonna be on there's no chainsaw on it it's just him kind of going oh yeah. here we go the thing hardly fucking worked <laughs> <laughs> but um there was one scene where I just kind of wanted to fuck around and see what it would look like so I laid down on the floor in the corner where the girl would have been with my camera and I told him to put the chainsaw in front of my camera and then pull it back because yeah. I wanted to reverse the shot and see this chainsaw coming, coming down. right at it. We didn't end up using it but same principle. I was like okay so put it right here mm-hmm. and then pull it back <laughs> and then we'll do it again because <laughs> I was like I, ca- I want that. Yeah. It's coming down at you shot but it, it didn't end up working out. We didn't use it but most it Im- is- yeah, most impressively and what I think they probably did with is it called a quib? The exploding blood sacks? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Is the I shot Marvin in the face scene. You don't see Marvin get shot in the face. You hear a bang, you see the back window get splattered, and then that's all you see. You don't Mm -hmm. see Marvin's dead body. You don't see... I mean, you see the brain that is in their hair. I think my only thing there would be with... I mean, and I'm not super familiar with guns. I feel like with the gun size, his whole head wouldn't be gone. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, is that they didn't show you that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he hits him in the face with a forty-five. And his whole head is gone. (laughs) (laughs) It's a clever way to shoot I'm an atom bomb dropping motherfucker, motherfucker. (laughs) Did you get back here and pick up this boop plane? (laughs) I think the gunshots are the actual only um, special effects. No, you do see the sword slash on screen. Yeah, sword slashes. Um, But yeah, I think the gunshots, like whenever... uh, But even that one, your back of the shot, the blade goes, and then he just spins around. So it's just a makeup effect. You don't see the blade actually go through the skin. I couldn't remember if you could see it from... Bruce's perspective or not, but like when Travolta gets shot, I think you actually see the yeah, exploding the, the, the quibs. Marks set up. Yeah. yeah um, so th- I think that's interesting. That's the only time they bothered to show any of the special effects is when it's yeah mm-hmm. a stunt part in the shirt exploding. Um, uh, fuck, I was gonna think of another one and I forgot. Oh yeah, uh, when they <laughs> when they kill the dudes while they get the briefcase, like that's the only one I have problems with because they show they have like a weird special effect like Golden flare flash. Yeah. on the screen, that's, and I'm like, that's not realistic looking. That, that's a classic everybody brings up, but, but to me, that is like his nod to the old Grindhouse films. Yeah, you know where it's like the flaring that you would see like on a drive-in movie theater screening of a gunshot where it's yeah. just going to flare out in various ways. It's like his homage to the you know late 60s, early 70s cheap films he grew up on. Well, yeah, and, and maybe it's paying homage to, you know, other films. But yeah, that's the only part in the whole movie where yeah. I was like, oh, I wish he wouldn't have done that. Because you don't see Brett... Right? Cause you, yeah, you, you don't. You, you don't see, see Brett shooting die. and then the flare. You don't see the fourth man die. The flares are fourth man. When he comes out and he tries to gun him up. And then... No, flares are Brett. Because oh. it was early into the movie. Because I was like, ah, because you could see them both shooting him. And I was yeah. like, I don't like that. <laughs> I was like, that really bugs me. But when he, my one of my favorite parts, and I'm, yeah, my drinks are hitting me now. But, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite parts in the opening sequence is that when Brett's trying to give his ex- explanation and Samuel Jackson pulls his gun out, shoots dude on the couch without even looking, puts his gun away, and he goes, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Because <laughs> it's just like the Marvin shot, where it's mm-hmm. like, it's going to hit you out of fucking nowhere. You didn't see that coming. <laughs> you figured that he's going to shoot the guy at the table. You forgot about the guy on the couch. <laughs> yeah. 
not a good day to be hanging out with your uh, buds in the apartment eating mm-hmm. burgers for breakfast. But damn, that's a tasty burger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your last note? I don't remember. Do what? What's your last note? I don't remember because I might end on yours depending on what yours Oh, is. no. I just wanted to talk about unconventional shots. I wanted to hear your opinions on some of these. I've got a list. I already covered Marvin, so I've got a couple that I could bring up if you'd like to talk about those. Yeah. Um, it's, and one of them is actually, I have a book... Um, the filmmaker's eye there's like a subtitle to it that's something about knowing and breaking the rules and that's the first one i have on my list (laughs) so the sequence that introduces us to butch and ultimately introduces us to marcellus um in the non-chronological version here um is butch's title card plays it drops off And then we're staring at Butch and we're hearing Marcellus in the background, which is unconventional in itself because Tarantino knows tension like a son of a bitch. I've got another note on that. I'll bring up another shot. Tarantino knows tension like a son of a bitch. So we hang on Bruce Willis, who's just being his diehard era, pissed off version of himself. And then we pull back right and go over Marcellus Wallace's shoulder. And we're just staring at the back of his head. You can't see Bruce Willis. All you can see are the earrings and the band-aid that's on Mm -hmm. the back of his dome. And he continues his offer all the way out. And we sit in this no music, odd, weird shot where your eyes are all over the screen, like looking for meaning. And you've read that book, and I haven't read that book. So explain it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it conveys like the sense of like weird mystery and danger. Yeah. So, um, cause I, I think the bandaid shot actually comes before we see him monologuing to Bruce. I think the bandaid. Oh no. Yeah, it is because he is talking to. He's Bruce got in the bandaid on right. the back of his head. Um, so yeah, the book that I have is talking about uh, specific kind of accepted rules in films and why you should understand them, so that whenever you go to break them, you break them intentionally. Mm-hmm. And um, Pulp Fiction does it like multiple times, and well, I've, I've got I've, like five examples. <laughs> <laughs> I've never um, noticed it because again, I, I haven't watched this film since I was in my early twenties, and I haven't watched this film since I went to school. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I'm definitely viewing it from a different you perspective. You were viewing it from an actress's perspective back then, and now you're viewing it as a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the shot... Actually, any of those are great examples. Whenever you see um, just strictly Bruce Willis, whenever um, Wallace is the one talking the whole time, and you don't ever see Wallace's face, mm-hmm. and then whenever we back up and all we see is the back of Wallace's head, and even later, um, or I guess it's technically earlier. I don't know. The, <laughs> the order is so hard to keep up let's, with. Let's this. stick to the order of what we see on screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> whenever, and yeah, that's the beginning of the movie. Whenever um, Travolta and Jackson's characters are standing in front of the door, we no, always pause because I want to get to that one. I'm just gonna say. We'll talk about the part that you want to talk about, but just whenever they're like monologuing in front of the mm-hmm. door, all we see is just the back of their heads, and we never show their faces while they're giving this big monologue while they're staring at this door. And um, it's universally accepted for the most part. If you're going to do a close shot, or close up shot, your close up shot should be meaningful because, mm-hmm. um, especially like extreme close ups, it's like details like the eyes or like the mouth or whatever. It's like whatever is the most intense, most important. Mm-hmm. Um, 
portion of what's happening in this scene of somebody's picking up a gun off the table, you know, you're doing a close-up of, oh, yeah. they've got the gun. Think the reverse. Watch Silence of the Lambs when he's leaned forward and he's staring directly at the audience. And yeah. It's like that break the fourth wall shot. The reason they're that close on Hannibal Lecter is to create this sense of uncertainty. Yeah. And, and like, close-up shots are meant to be visually important things. And so to then kind of circumvent that by showing the back of someone's <laughs> head... Um, your eyes visually do kind of drift the screen looking for other things and trying to find meaning in the image that you're seeing because that's an expectation that if we're focused on this thing, there is something meaningful in this mm-hmm. scene. Um, and it, it does kind of give you a sense of unease when you can't find anything. And I think for me, um, especially in the scene where Jackson and Travolta are just monologuing in front of the door because there is nothing happening in that scene mm-hmm. except for the back of their head. And the conversation. I, well, I'll, I'll bring that up, too. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, there's nothing happening in that scene except the back of their heads. You're focused so intently on what the words are that they're saying because there's nothing else there. And, like, with Wallace, you see the Band-Aid on the back of his head, so I think that's where the theories come mm-hmm. from about what's in the briefcase. Yeah, and got his soul sucked out yeah, of the back of his head. Um, so then you're, like, trying to put meaning, like, is there something going on with the band-aid like what why is the band-aid there like mm-hmm. like what's going on here so like it, it kind of who is he talking to yeah like it kind of throws from off a, your perspective of what's actually important in the scene from a dialogue perspective it's interesting that while you get bruce wallace bruce wallace bruce willis's <laughs> angry face uh, it's while Marcellus is talking down to him. You're a wash up. You're a has been. You need to take that. And then when we switch back out, he's like kind of nudging him. I'll give you X amount of dollars mm-hmm. to throw this fight. So you, you're there with Willis's face when he's like, you've never been a good boxer. You're a shit boxer. And then after the fight, he's on the phone. Well, he, if he was a better boxer, he'd still be alive. <laughs> I, do, I do think it's an interesting choice to only show Bruce during that monologue because um, I, I feel like because Bruce literally doesn't reply back at all. Mm. Um, you kind of get the sense of how he's feeling because it kind of starts to feel like Wallace is also talking down to you too. Yeah. So then you're kind of sitting there like, yeah, you're kind of pissing me off a little bit, aren't you? Yeah. And technically, Bruce killed more people than anybody else in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, just so I can talk about it because holy mother of shit, uh, you, I thought you were going to go down, no, hippity I, hopping and down the low. No, I saw saw that note on here. So I was like, I, just the fact that they shot the back of their heads while they're monologuing about feet. <laughs> the opening trailing shot. How I'm going to combine two of these. Um, yeah, look, let me try to work these around here mm-hmm. so that I know what I'm saying. Um, the opening monologue where they're talking about cheeseburgers in Amsterdam. We get out of the car. They start discussing foot massages. They have this whole conversation about if foot massage is the same as cheating. Is it not the same as cheating? Yeah, of course, it's Tarantino, so you've got feet involved. But moving past that, it's a mundane conversation. Mm. They get to the door. We have the back of the headshot you were talking about. And then he looks down at his watch and says, oh, it's not enough time. We stay at door level. The camera turns right. They walk off. And continue their conversation about foot massage for like another like 45 seconds and then walk back toward the camera, back of the head again, and we're off. It's Tarantino going, 
fuck you. <laughs> I think for me, the most interesting thing about that sequence, because I, I remember thinking it as we were watching the movie, because you linger for so long in the shot. Because, I mean, it's big, one big mm-hmm. long take anyway, but you linger for so long in the moment where they're at the end of the hall talking about um, a foot massage and we're kind of still just sitting next to the door. I, I remember whenever we were sitting there, I was like, this is not a very attractive shot. Like, yeah. they're not super clearly in focus like it, it's not you can't really hear them once they walk off from the door well actually no opposite you can hear them quite well um the the audio level was still because there's no music going in the mm-hmm. background the audio level was still very loud and very clear and you could hear very clearly what the conversation was but the shot just was not attractive looking and i was like it's an interesting choice to have this uncomfortably long take mm-hmm. and a not particularly attractive scene where we're talking about kind of a strange conversation. <laughs> so then you feel kind of tense while also simultaneously in a weird way of learning a little bit about the character's personalities. Because yeah. one of them's like, I would have thrown him out too. And the other one's like, you don't think that's a little extreme? <laughs> to have so, a talking to with him. It, it reveals a lot about loyalty between yeah. the two of them. Yeah, because... Um, you can sit on your Travolta ultimately goes on to die, and he's the one who's mm-hmm. like, well, a foot massage means something. And the other dude's like, I think I'd just let it go, though, you know? <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just, it's kind of an, uh, like, not like ugly, ugly, but kind of just kind of an ugly, boring shot. And they're just yeah. monologuing about this very strange thing, and it's like, I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable. And what's yeah. happening? And what's on the other side of that door? And... Why do their opinions on feet matter so much? Exactly, and, but yeah. doesn't it work like at a very strange level? I mean, like you get that throughout Tarantino. It's supposed em- to make you uncomfortable. Yeah, his emphasis on um, mundane conversation. Like, think forward to my one of my favorite Tarantino films, The Inglorious Bastards. This dialogue he has about the way that German people say three with their pinky ring and middle as opposed to Americans with their ring middle and index finger and you have like this really long thing just about the way people say three (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting it's culturally significant and it eventually leads to a shootout in that bar (laughs) in glorious bastards but he does the same thing here where they're just having a conversation about you know how they feel basically about relationships and then you step into this room where Brett's going to die, the guy on the couch is going to die, we're going to get the briefcase. I was trying to see if I had um, highlighted it. I guess I didn't. But yeah, I I read a note earlier, which I thought was an interesting take that I hadn't really thought about before, um, where they were talking about these kind of... like, (laughs) absurd monologues that happen in this movie that seem kind of irrelevant or um, kind of clever in their own way because... Um, we'll get into that later, but there's, you know, a lot to be said about whether or not this movie is clever or this movie is insensitive or whatever, and whether or not this movie is, um... We can get into it now. I've I've only got one more unconventional shot, but... Oh, um, you know, we can go over that real quick first, but, um, there's a lot of opinions, I guess, that could be had about whether or not this movie is offensive, Mm -hmm. and, um, one of the reviews that I read that was talking about it said... Um, the saving grace of this movie was that it wasn't pretentious about it. Like it, even if it's making offensive comments, is poking fun and mm-hmm. it doesn't try to be anything that it's not. So when you have these kind of like weird monologuing conversations and like 
these kind of weird moments that are happening in the movie. It's the movie being like, ah, we're in on the joke too, you know? <laughs> yeah, like we're it's, here. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not pretentious and it, it's not forceful in like its viewpoints. Mm-hmm. So I did think that was interesting. But I would love to deep dive right back into that in half a second. <laughs> um, he's known for it at this point and it wasn't his thing but it's become his thing over his career uh this is one of the earlier examples you see it in reservoir dogs as well but shots from inside of a trunk in this case inside of the briefcase it is interesting yeah i I like from corners of rooms like these weird tracking shots and these weird angles that you you, you don't normally see pushes a fly on the wall almost. i do think it's pushed the boundary of filmmaking um whenever filmmakers make those kind of choices because i, I think standard films kind of have you thinking like i've got to get the master shot and the wide shot and the mid shot and blah 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 so like you kind of have these like very structured set up images that you feel like you need to get so then you kind of ignore these creative angles that Mm -hmm. give you like the anxiety or the power or the weakness or whatever in these scenes and i i do think it's interesting because when you get the image like especially involving the briefcase because there's a glowing light on it too and that helps like you you get the sense of what's in there you know and (laughs) I would love to pick Tarantino's brain because I do not believe that he had nothing in mind. I had a cr- I heard a crazy theory today. Really? Rock and roll is in the briefcase. <laughs> it gets stolen from shitty college kids. It's not given over to the English invasion in the diner scenes. <laughs> like that, there's like a hardcore theory that it's the concept of rock and roll that's in that briefcase. Well, one of the things that I read was like saying Tarantino was like basically like. It is nothing. It was originally mm-hmm. diamonds, and we thought that was too dull. And like there wasn't. It's <laughs> literally just a concept. It's just a device yeah. in the movie to get the movie moving. And I'm like, I don't buy that. I don't mm-hmm. think these other choices were made intentionally. I think he doesn't want to take away the fun. Yeah, it's like with anything else. Leave it up to audience interpretation. What do they think it's like? That's gonna make your film live another ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty fucking years. Or these, like, odd conversations about, like, what is exactly the significance of the golden telephone and the Godfather? Go on to the forums. <laughs> and I, I would buy that maybe even the significance of the briefcase has changed for him as his career has changed. But I don't yeah. think that there was never an original concept. No, there had to be. I don't think it was just diamonds and then we decided that was dumb, so we stuck a light in it. <laughs> like, I, I don't buy that. <laughs> but the big conversation, Kristen Bloom. So I have a couple of quotes I want to read, and then I want to talk. Is it um, about the sign that was in that guy's yard? Yes, it was. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I you were going to do the direct quote, and I was like, that no. might be problematic, no. as they say uh, in all the other... <laughs> no, I have a couple of quotes I want to read that are just kind of talking about the film, and then kind of want to dive into... Um, I think for me, the biggest takeaway of this movie... Uh, granted, it's an older film, so times have kind of changed yeah, since this movie. I was three when this came out. <laughs> <laughs> times have kind of changed since this movie came out, but, like, I think there is a bravery, whether you're being insensitive or not, about pushing boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no denying this movie pushed boundaries. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said the N-word, like, a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, um, so this is... Uh, you said fuck, like, 67 times. <laughs> um, Siskel and Ebert, this was from Gene Siskel, I believe, that uh, made this comment. 
So he said, the violent intensity of Pulp Fiction calls to mind other violent watershed films that were considered classics in their time and still are. Um, he references Psycho, Bonnie and Clyde, and then A Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, each film shook up a tired, bloated movie industry and used a world of lively, low lives to reflect how dull other movies had become. Yeah. And that, I predict, will be the ultimate honor of Pulp Fiction. Like all great films, it criticizes other movies. And then, um, because I want to talk specifically about... Uh, Social boundaries, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from Alan Stone, I believe, um, talking about kind of the absurd dialogue, um, especially between Vincent and Jules. <laughs> Whenever they accidentally kill Marvin, how it transforms um, cliche violence and unmasks macho myths. Um, because, you know, films previously, that was kind of like desirable, like the macho violent protector man and um, yeah, I shot that fucker on purpose <laughs> and here's a man getting killed on accident yeah, yeah and they, <laughs> they yeah they accidentally shoot a man's face off and then have to deal with it and it kind of tears apart and makes laughable like this glorification of mm-hmm. male violence and that like samuel jackson standing there with his i'm with stupid t-shirt yeah and there <laughs> and there might be like offensive words that are thrown around and i think honestly this is an incredibly insightful comment that the movie itself, culturally, for the most part, I do have some qualms that we'll talk about, yeah, is Harvey politically... <laughs> no, not even Harvey Weinstein, actually. <laughs> is technically, in a lot of ways, politically correct. There's no nudity. Mm-hmm. There's no violence directed against women. It celebrates interracial friendships, interracial relationships, mm-hmm. cultural diversity. There are strong women. There are strong black men. And it breaks stereotypes, especially for this time that it came out. So... I, I, I think that's important to recognize. Like, yeah, the N-word is thrown around a lot in this yeah. movie. The weirdest part about... The, I'm going to have to do the quote. I can't not No, you can't do the no. quote. <laughs> then, no. Basically, the, the, the legendary Quentin Tarantino cameo quote uh, about the sign in his yard yeah uh where you know I, it's not my business to store african-americans um, <laughs> um, it, that's the only real qualm that people seem to have because he wrote that role for himself but as you and i were talking about off mic i respect his decision to have this hyper controversial character he volunteers to say the actual lines but he's also the man who hired samuel jackson hired the guy who played marcellus wallace and that character turns into a straight bitch in front of the wolf (laughs) so like all the hardness to that character goes away and it makes the line did you see a sign in my yard comical as fuck it doesn't feel racist it feels like he's like a a prison guy well (laughs) i am actually going to disagree i don't think that that's the most problematic thing in this film for me honestly um because uh tarantino's not the only character who throws that word around tarantino just does it in every movie and that's very (laughs) problematic Um, there there are african-american actors in this movie who also say the same word Mm -hmm. um the guys that are running the pawn shop say the word racist redneck rapists yeah Yeah. and it, it feels a lot more um hate-filled in those scenes specifically Mm -hmm. and i feel like there is a clear distinction in this movie that's intentionally made tarantino's character is a character who is friends with jackson's character they show his wife coming home his wife is a black woman Mm -hmm. and then we have and he's helping them (laughs) yeah and he's helping them get this figured out we have jackson and travolta who are clearly actually friends outside of just work associates and that's an interracial friendship um 
Oh, man, I feel like there was one other interracial Uma Thurman and Marcellus. Yeah, yeah, Uma Thurman and Marcellus, another interracial relationship. Actually, a large chunk of the relationships in this movie are interracial. The only white couples we really see mm-hmm. are the two robbing the diner. And, and this then... is 1994, two years after L.A. burned under yeah. race riots. Yeah. yeah, and then we see... Same um... year O.J. Simpson was acquitted. Yeah. <laughs> So it's a, a hyper-racial yeah. time in the country for something like this to drop. Yeah. And so Quentin Tarantino's character, to me, makes sense in that reality of well, 1994. For me, the separation there is Tarantino's character, to me, um, and, and maybe... I'm I'm a white woman, so I, I don't have the personal struggle mm-hmm. of... No, I'm not a racist. Being... Let's... Throw that up front, and then we don't need to clarify. I'm not a white woman. I'm not a white woman either. <laughs> I'm a white woman, so I don't. I don't have the personal experience of being um, a minority on a racial yeah. level, anyway. Um, so I, I get that there are going to be varying opinions, and I'm not trying to invalidate the opinions of people who are a racial minority. Of course. But for me, I feel like as a white person watching a white person making these moves, what Tarantino's character in this movie is someone who's friends with. Um, African-American characters and like he's gotten this comfort level and the African-American characters in this movie for the most part are strong quote-unquote cool characters Mm -hmm. and this is a white man in a suburban neighborhood trying to be cool with his you know African-American brother doesn't know that he's supposed to cut off the a at the end of (laughs) yeah like 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 he's adding an er and Samuel Jackson in part got the role because somebody confused him with Lawrence Fishburne. So like Sam to say that in front of Samuel Jackson, you know he got permission yeah. from Jackson because Jackson was would have beat his ass. <laughs> Tarantino's character to me is just like a a white brother trying to look cool to his yeah. black brothers, and he's trying to fit in and trying to look a little hard. And you know, I don't want to talk about the coffee <laughs> in my kitchen. <laughs> And then we get we get to these pawn shop characters who are legitimately deliverance level racist. Yeah, like legitimately racist, and they get theirs. Like mm. one of them gets killed right away, and the other one gets left um, with Marcellus. Wallace. Yeah, gets left to be tortured. <laughs> My problem, and I think the most problematic thing about this movie, is there is not any like really subverting how homophobic that scene is like it it is in my opinion um you feel it's homophobic i do i do i don't feel it's any more homophobic than deliverance like i feel like it's a rape scene it is a i mean it is a rape scene but i think it's more racist than it is homophobic well they were gonna rape bruce's character too they just end up doing it to wallace first um and yeah, they do. They do throw away the the or throw around the N word, so they are clearly uh, raping racist. him because he's a black. Man. Yeah, they are yeah. clearly racist too. But they they put Bruce's character in the exact same situation. They were going to do the same thing to Butch. And to me, what feels problematic about this movie is at no other point do we really acknowledge uh, homophobia or. Mm-hmm any of that stuff and this is the only time we have an encounter of same-sex relations and it's very negative very violent do you feel like zed is gay or do you feel like he's like prison gay like it's a power move because when i watch that scene it feels like a racist power move here's this black guy who is king of the criminal underworld he doesn't He he doesn't try to make love to him. He doesn't call him cute. He pulls out, if anything, it's fetishism. 
And he pur- but he purposely <laughs> knocks out Bruce's What's wrong character. with being a gimp? Like, he purposely knocks out Bruce's character. That's why I don't feel like it's wholly racist. Because he, like, Bruce well, he was going to shoot. also didn't shoot the black guy. I'm just gonna say, Bruce <laughs> was going to shoot and kill him. And he stops him and knocks him out so they can mm-hmm. collect Bruce as a prize, too. And the only real interaction we have with, like I said, same-sex relations is this weird dungeon they have downstairs. Where it's, it's a very same, cliche yeah. character in leather that they keep in a box. And, like, he's got chains and stuff on him. He's a gimp. Yeah, and, like, it feels to me... Because this is a time, this was before same-sex marriages were legal and culturally a different time, so I'll forgive it that. I'm not saying that Pulp Fiction has a responsibility to be uh, more conscious of stuff like that. 20 years ahead of itself. Yeah, Yeah. this came out in 94, so I I think analyzing it from today's perspective, I can view it from a lens where I'm like, culturally, we were in a different place. So Mm -hmm. I'm not mad about it by any means, but I, I think if we're going to pick apart anything about this movie, it is that that scene has like a very negative connotation and a very violent connotation about same-sex relations like that's the only I time think in that that's movie interesting because that. i don't feel that way like at all like i i understand where you're coming from you know from that angle to me that is like power rape that you see in prisons but I keep, and it has a very prison feel they keep to a it. male in a leather suit in a it's box a though he's he's not treated with any respect he's basically a slave he's a submissive yeah, yeah. he's a bdsm submissive and, like none of the interaction down there is remotely positive and the end result is you're going to die yeah so like it, it feels like it's I feel like it's, I, I, let me try to connect dots and see if I can understand where you're coming from. I feel like it's as homophobic as Silence of the Lambs is transphobic. Because Buffalo I Bill guess that's fair. Dra- I mean, Buffalo... dresses up as a woman. He's making himself a woman. And he's skin. a killer. I mean, to mm-hmm. be fair, if we're going to analyze it from that lens, like, yeah, I guess I would argue that maybe Buffalo Bill's character is... Um, and, and, like, I'm not necessarily going so far to say that this movie is anti-gay. I'm just no, saying... No, I know, I know, I know. I'm not upset with you. I, I'm trying to understand where you're coming I'm from. I'm just saying it's shot from a lens where it's insensitive in that realm. Like, we're showing mm-hmm. a section of people in society in an incredibly cliche, like, damaging way. Like, yeah, Buffalo Bill is an example. Like, he's a trans male who's a murderer, who's an outcast, who lives in squalor, and, like, mm-hmm. nothing about his life is positive or normal in any way, and the same for these guys. But he fucked him. <laughs> says, not mine. I know. <laughs> Did you fuck me? I'd fuck me. Just saying. Me. You're not being serious. Um, but the, the pawn shop characters are very similar. They're macho, violent, like just very negative, cliche-like connotations mm-hmm. of what this culture is viewed as. So like to me, it, like if I'm going to criticize anything and be like, hey, maybe we should have been a little more conscious of how we were representing this i that would be my argument not necessarily that it's racist but that it is a bit homophobic i I think i see where you're coming from i don't don't think this movie dislikes gay people no i don't tie the the gimp to gay people like i tie it to the bdsm community and they are racist characters so like that's where the disconnect is here like I, i i think that it's a power rape as opposed to like a homosexual but, but I think the fact that that's rapist. the only way that communities represented matters like you yeah, see no, I, I, I understand <laughs> you see um, 
um, Wallace's character is a drug lord, so, I mean, that's a bit cliche, but he's a successful man who owns a very nice home. Mm-hmm. Um, Jackson's character is also, you know, a gangster, which is a bit cliche um, to have the black character as a gangster, mm-hmm. but he ha- he's... The only he's two. got a white partner, yeah. and he's the only one who Yeah, lives. he's the only <laughs> two that has the redemption arc of the two of them. The white character just mm-hmm. ends up dying. And then um, a Tarantino's character is, a, or Tarantino's wife's character, even though you only see her in passing, is a black female nurse. Like, she's clearly, mm-hmm. like, a respected member of the community. So there's, like, a balance here where you see these guys, their yeah. characters in powerful. is going to be home in an hour <laughs> and a half. Yeah, and he I'm doesn't. going to get fucking divorced. Well, he doesn't talk about her as a nagger. He's not like, oh, she's a bitch. She's going to complain. Yeah. He's like, I love my wife. Do I look like I want to get divorced today? No. Like, he, he doesn't complain or trash talk his yeah. wife. He's just worried, like, how she's going to react. So there is this clear separation of these other characters that maybe are seen a bit cliche in some instances. Also, like, represented in other ways. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, for me, why... If I was going to say anything was like a little like... Ugh, you feel like, it's homophobic in that one scene. Yeah, and that, no, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's intentional. I don't think it's an intentional, like, we don't like gay people. I, th- I think if we were going to pick this apart and find a thing where I was going to be like, ugh, like maybe that we should have... age well. Yeah, yeah. like maybe we should have put a little more thought into this. That would be the only thing because culturally that section of society isn't represented any other section in this movie other than that way. Do you and think that's the responsibility of film? I'm not to, saying that it is or to isn't. To represent every section of society? I'm not saying that it is or isn't. I'm just saying if... Like, it's a strange choice to me of all the things happening in this movie mm-hmm. if we're going to complain about something, and I think that's why that scene in particular stood out to me is the dropping of the N-word to me is less offensive than that scene. So if... Because we've had rap music since 1994, we're more comfortable with a lot of the themes than they would have been in 1994. Typically in rap music, though, it's African-American saying it. So, like, I think think the reason critics want to go to that and be like, oh, the white guy said that. Like, to me, like, as a counterpoint to that, if we're specifically looking for a thing to be upset about, I'm like... If you really think about it, though, is it as bothersome as this over here? Like, it's not that I'm like, oh, God, you shouldn't have done that. It's like, I'm like, if we're complaining, though. No, (laughs) I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that when I watch that scene, all I see is like a rape sequence. Like, I, I... I, I guess I disconnected the homosexuality from the sequence. And I, th- I think the fact that it's two very macho men that ultimately, like, kill those men kind of mm-hmm. helps lend to that. It's like one very white male macho boxer and then a big black gangster guy, yeah. like, who kill those dudes. Not like, it kind cool. of... Get out of town tonight. <laughs> Leave this motherfucker with me. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of, like establishes that a bit more like the macho masculinity taking out that section of society and and again i'm not saying that they're responsible either way i see where you're coming from now i'm sorry i didn't catch it a minute ago yeah no i understand i understand how that could be conceived as homophobic (laughs) i have a gay brother and i watch a lot of movies so like i just i pinned it together in my head as a rape thing as opposed to like a homophobic thing but you're right leaving him in the room at the guy that just raped him that, that, that does feel a little strange. And, and again, you. I'm not saying like on first viewing, like I would immediately be like, ooh. I didn't catch it on fifth viewing. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying on first viewing, I would immediately be like, ooh, but I'm just saying like, 
I, and again, I think the only reason it really stood out to me as a thing I wanted to talk about is because people are criticizing mm-hmm. this movie as being racist. And that was a thing I read multiple times, that it was a racist movie. And I'm like, to me, it's a very strange thing to pick at when there are interracial relationships, both like sexually and as friends. Mm-hmm. There are you know, a lot of very strong characters in this movie that are African-American characters. And the white dude in this movie that throws the n-word around or all of the white dudes in this movie that throw the n-word around are kind of like subservient to the other characters yeah. ultimately travolta dies yeah <laughs> so to me like i'm like I, like as a counter argument like this is a little bit more offensive <laughs> i never i've never thought about it in that light you want to watch it again <laughs> not tonight um strong point though because i like okay. i wasn't trying to um diss on this movie like i i think that's literally like the only thing where i'm kind of like ooh, maybe we didn't go the right direction there like i think there are strong black characters in this movie funny race point that is made i can't remember the names right now because i've had a couple of beers over the past hour um the milkshake scene when he asks her the two band names one of them is two white guys one of them is two black guys so he's basically just asking whether she'd like chocolate or vanilla <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> did not catch that um but speaking of the milkshake scene strong women in this movie like yeah mia overdoses and not in a yeah. not in a great way there and he has to like save her ass but um she is weirdly in a way for being such a small part in this movie a character who runs the show we never see her and wallace together at all even though they're married Mm -hmm. and you can tell she runs the household like wallace is like i'm gonna be out of town and she's like well i want to go out like send somebody (laughs) i want to go to the restaurant bring me one of your henchmen and if he grabs me the wrong way kill his ass yeah and like they go to the restaurant and she's like i want a fucking five dollar milkshake and i want (laughs) to dance and we're gonna do it and like Mm -hmm. she gets her way like and her character isn't necessarily, like, the strongest character in the movie, but, I mean, like, for being a female character in a 90s movie, yeah. like, she is a strong-willed character. And, um, again, we just see her in passing, but Tarantino's wife is a nurse, which is a strong, respected character in the community. And uh, even the drug dealer's wife is kind of like, this is my house, get that motherfucker out of here, <laughs> you know? So, like, we see a lot of, like, strong-willed, like, commanding females in this movie. Um and I, I don't know. I, like, I, I feel like there's not culturally a ton to pick apart. Like, I, I think this was a movie for coming out in the 90s that was very conscious of those type of issues. I think it's the first time Tarantino slapped his dick on the table and said, this is the movie I've been trying to write. And you don't see that again until Inglorious Bastards. And we don't sexualize... Right up to that last scene where he cuts the swastika in the dude's forehead and he says, this is my masterpiece. Like You don't get another one of these for like another 20 years. And he doesn't remotely sexualize Mia's character, even though Uma's yeah. a very attractive lady. He dresses her like a man. Like the, she's the, wearing like the a... The most sexualized he makes a woman in the film is the taxi driver who saves Bruce. And it's just because she's talking to him in a sexual way and she has cleavage. That's the extent she's an inconsequential character too Mm -hmm. like you you think i or i did anyway and maybe it was an intentional choice that she's going to rat him out because we have him giving her the money and being like no wink wink don't tell anyone she's one of the wolf's fixers Hmm. (laughs) weird 
she was there to pick him up so he didn't get beaten to death by the mob when he threw the fight and then she finds out on the radio that he killed the other guy yeah hmm. and Marcellus and uh, Vega show up at the room to gun him down they don't show up at his hotel though she never tells anyone what shows hotel. up at his house but she never tells anyone what hotel true, he's true, staying true. at I have to revisit <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um yeah, interesting choice. Lead actress. I mean, she's the cover of the DVD, like, yeah. laying on a bed, kind of sensually smoking that a cigarette. not in the film. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, at no point is she honestly really sexualized. You see that scene in the bathroom where the women are primping, and she's like, I'm going to snort coke. And then she's like, I said goddamn, you know? Like, she's, like, not remotely a character who's like, ooh, look at me, you yeah. know? So I, I, I would argue for the critics, this was a movie... That maybe in 2020 didn't age as well as it could have yeah. culturally. But Much like Godfather for... 2 doesn't work because Michael slaps his wife over an abortion argument. And it's like, yeah, no, I get in 2020 that's a wild scene, but in 1978... <laughs> and then 94, this was a movie I personally think was ahead of its time. We weren't mm. having conversations about homophobia. relationships and homophobia. Well, yeah, we weren't having those kinds of conversations at the time. And, you know, civil rights movements had already happened, so we had already, you know, had, like, conversations regarding, mm-hmm. obviously, you don't enslave people. But, like, yeah, there were still race riots and issues going on and, yeah, the L.A. riots and stuff. And to be forward about having so many interracial relationships. Mm-hmm. And I, I can forgive to some extent, maybe not being as conscious of how hurtful, um, kind of ignoring the LGBT community might be and kind of maybe representing that in a way that's mm-hmm. a bit insensitive. Like I, I can kind of forgive that to some extent because you can only do so much with the time. Oops. <laughs> you can only do so much with the time that you're you're given in your movie and to be progressive on so many other topics. Mm-hmm. It's like I like it was the nineties. I don't know how Forrest Gump gutted this thing and made it lose all of its Oscars. It's Forrest. my major review that I read that stuck with me was Forrest Gump is a great film. It came out side by side. It stole six out of the seven things Pulp Fiction went up for. But ultimately, it's kind of toothless. Like, it, it, Pulp Fiction is nothing but teeth, and maybe that's what damned it in 1994. That's not what bothers me about Forrest Gump. Like, Forrest Gump, I think, is almost as naive as the main character is. Like, it, it's kind of, like, innocent and kind of wholesome in its own way because Forrest Gump's character is, you know... Yeah. Kind of wholesome and These kind of really innocent. dark things happen on the outskirts, but yeah. they never dive into them. And this whole film, Pulp Fiction, is in the outskirts. Yeah. They're polar opposite films. Yeah, but in Forrest Gump's character is kind of that way. Like he doesn't let this darkness inside. And I think that's, I think that works for the movie for it to kind of be that way. My problem with Forrest Gump, and I do think it's interesting, it's an interesting commentary of how we work mm-hmm. as a society because Forrest Gump is still a movie to this day that's you know, well-loved and well-respected and played, like, every fucking month in schools whenever you get a movie day or whatever, that society-wise, we have romanticized his and Jenny's relationship and can't address how incredibly problematic that is. (laughs) It's But we're mad at a white dude who's friends with a black dude saying the N-word. Forrest Gump is a woman with AIDS 
giving AIDS to a mentally impaired person and then leaving that mentally stealing his person. child yeah. and manipulating him yeah. and yeah there's a lot of sorry really... I interrupted you Black Panther Party didn't see the sign on your yard that said dead storage <laughs> but it's a movie with a lot of problems itself and we've come to romanticize a relationship that's not very romantic when the truth is there are white men in America how about this how about how about you let me finish the sentence? There are white men in America. Go ahead. There are white men in America who are friends with African-American men who probably say the N-word. Like, mm-hmm. there are probably people, and they probably call their white friends crackers. There are yeah. people in interracial friendships and relationships who have found this level of comfort and acceptance, and that is true to life. Hell fucking yeah. I vote that our next big one we do, Forrest Gump. I think we just do them all. Like our our, our practice run is just nineteen ninety four because that means we get to watch Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> do we have other points? Mm-mm. This was a really good run. I'm impressed with us. I'm impressed with us. I'm gonna go make you some sketty. I'm for it. All right. Show links. Yeah, still there. <laughs> Are you still? You can find us over at youtube.com slash Kristen Bloom or youtube.com slash Nightmare Box Productions or our website, which is the Nightmare Box where you can go see all of our films. You can go see The Dolls. You can see Happy Birthday. You can see Brainstorm. Uh, you can see behind the scenes footage. You can see some stories I wrote a long time ago that I need to update. You can go find us over on Instagram at at Nightmare Box Productions or Twitter at at Nightmare Box Pro. Oh, go fly over to the Facebook account. Facebook.com slash Nightmare Box Productions. Or you can send us an email at... Uh, Nightmare Box Productions at Gmail. <laughs> you send us that email, you let me know you want a copy of the Madman Diaries that has recently been soaked in beer. I'll sign that bastard. I'll send it to you. Send me $15. I'll send it to you anywhere in the world. Um, is that it? I think so. Do you have a favorite scene? I mean, probably where he got shot in the head just because it caught me so off guard because I forgot <laughs> about it. I like the, the, the dive back when he's explaining how he's going to get divorced and then you get the flash, like, fucking dream sequence where she comes and into the room the and they're body. all carrying the body out of the room. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> and then they drop it on the floor. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Ready for Sketty? Yeah. I love you, sweetheart. Love you. And I love you guys. And we will talk to you on Saturday, Sunday, eh, target, whenever. Mm. <laughs>